What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Bassist educator author David C. Gross and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade eights with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an artist. Revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. What happens? You're about to find out. It's another episode of Notes from an Artist. David, never mind the bollocks. It's time for another episode of Notes from an Artist. Tom, what are bollocks? What are bollocks? And why should I never mind them? You should mind them. They are the British vernacular for testicle. Oh, my God. You learn something new on the show. I not that I'll be able to use that anywhere. I should hope not. My name is Tom Semioli, and my co-host is... David C. Gross. And maybe I won't be able to use them ever. <laughs> at our age, they're just they're just for decoration at this point, David. <laughs> they just hang around. <laughs> Welcome to the Neville up in <laughs> the Catskills, New York. Try the veal. We'll be here all week. Uh, you may be listening to us, audience member, on our Notesman Artist podcast, which is streaming right now on Apple, Amazon, Buzzsprout, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are potted. And if you really want to win friends and influence your annoying neighbors, check out our YouTube page, oddly enough, called Notesman Artist, where you can enjoy behind-the-scenes video clips with our past guests. And you, the audience member, may be listening to David and myself every Monday night on Cygnus Radio. Let me spell that for you. C-Y-G-N-U-S. You cue that up on the browser of your choice. And you can listen to us in real time at 8 p.m. Isn't that cool, David? It's very cool. Our show tonight, David, features a bona fide rock and roll legend, Glenn Matlock, bassist and founding member of the Sex Pistols. Glenn was much more than a Sex Pistol and a bassist, though he didn't play on their only iconic album, Nevermind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistol. He did co-write 10 of the 12 songs on the album, including the band's two anthems, God Save the Queen and Anarchy in the UK. Glenn left the Sex Pistols under dubious circumstances in 1977 before their day debut album was recorded and released. And you can read all about it, David, in his fabulous biography, I Was a Teenage Sex Pistol. I guess you could say Glenn was replaced by Sid Vicious, but Sid couldn't play bass. That's Steve Jones. Getting rid of Glenn was the doings of their manager, Malcolm McLaren, more for publicity purposes, because again, Glenn was a player, Sid was not. And Glenn was really the architect of their sound, which drew heavily from British rock, as we know and love, the small faces, the faces, and my beloved Martha Hoop. Glenn did appear on several archival Sex Pistols releases, and he did several reunion tours with the band in the 90s and in the 21st century. But those guys haven't performed in a long time. Johnny is at odds with the band over a biopic that he did not care for. But that is another story for another pistol. But it was great to have Glenn on the show. You know, David, he never left the music business. He was in lots of bands. He was in The Rich Kids with Mid-Year, Mick Jones of The Clash. He was a member of Iggy Pop's band in 1980. We're going to play some tracks from that album. He did Soldier with Iggy, former James Osterberg. He played with The Damned. He got to play with his heroes, The Faces. He was filling in the bass chair for Ronnie Lane. Of course, it was The Faces without Rod. That's when they had uh, Mick Hucknall, Simply Red. Glenn played with Primal Scream. He subbed for Gary Mountfield, who was a Stone Rose. You remember the Stone Roses? He was in a band called the International Swingers with Blondie drummer Clem Burke and James Stevenson of Generation X. He is a touring bassist with Blondie. 
He's toured with Sylvain Sylvain of the New York Dolls. Glenn has seven solo records. When we spoke to him, he was preparing for a tour with Gilby Clark of Guns N' Roses, Clem Burke, and Steve Fishman, who you know from his work with Hugh Cornwell of the Stranglers. And David, one of the topics we discussed in this interview was the fact that aside from Sid Vicious, the Sex Pistols were learned individuals and solid musicians and not the amateur thuggish dim-witted yabos that the media portrayed them as. Well, most of these guys grew up with the Beatles. Blues rock from the original blues bands of Britain. And the thing about punk, lyrically it was political. Musically, like most new things. Even the Beatles were considered a new thing. Everyone wants to knock on you. Everyone wants to say, oh, you can't do this. You can't play. You can't sing. You can't. But in retrospect, the better bands from that day really knew how to play. And as I always say, I think the best drum fill in rock and roll is that short little clip in God Save the Queen. That really sums up, it's the next generation's Keith Moon, for as far as I'm concerned, the best drum fill in rock and roll. Absolutely. And well, you look at the various uh, members' solo careers. I mean, obviously, Johnny Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten, has a nearly 50-year career with his experimental group, Public Image Limited. Quite an accomplishment. Steve Jones, though he had some problems, worked in lots of bands and hosted his own radio show for many years, Jonesy's Jukebox, which I referred to. And of course, Steve does a lot of studio work. Paul Cook, great drummer, another guy who was in fans all throughout his career, his post-Sex Pistols career. We had a great time with Glenn. He's a witty character. We hope to have him back on and uh, certainly would love him to play with us in the United States in the Notes from an Artist Orchestra. He'd be a lot of fun. So tell us about the playlist, David. This is a really interesting playlist. What we've got here are a few different things. We have some of his influences, which include Bobby Brown, which Glenn, if you're listening, this is the only song recorded by the Bobby Brown Quartet. It's a tune called Venus Velvet. We have Dusty Springfield. We have Small Faces. We have Humble Pie, which he loved. And we have a bunch of tunes that he played. Everything from the Rich Kids to Iggy Pop, The Dam, his solo records, and some great stuff by the International Swingers. And a really cool thing, he did a song by The Move called Fire Brigade. And I remember that song because when my sister came back from England, she brought a promotional single of a tune called Omnibus of, of 45. And the flip side was Fire Brigade. So it was great to hear that song again. All right. Fabulous. Okay, David, never mind the intro. Let's get on with Glenn Matlock. Glenn, you're talking to Tom. That's me. You're talking to David. We're two bass players, so you're in good company. <laughs> What's that bass you got in the back there? That, that like... is a Fender Jazz bass with a right. um, Jackson Pollock type uh, pick guard. David, uh, I have to compete with my partner who has custom made basses. Now, here we go. <laughs> Look at this coffee table. As per uh, Bruce Thomas saw that bass and accused David of playing a coffee table. Oh, right. we ended up spending about 15, 20 minutes gathering all our bass player friends to do pictures of their bases as coffee tables. One of them had um, a big plate of spaghetti on top of his base. It was, uh, it was very funny. It worked well, really well. I, I, I haven't done any preparation, I'm afraid, but okay. I've got a little piano in the back there. And that, <laughs> oh, the problem yeah. I have with jazz basses is they, they slip off your knee when you're trying to sit down and play. <laughs> but they do. 
That's why I stick with a precision. It, it's just just sits there nicely. Yeah, we yes. love the Fender. Yes. Well, I've got one of those over on the other side. Love the precision bass. Always have. The go-to yeah. bass. Fat neck. Davis, let us introduce our audience member to Glenn Matlock. Glenn Matlock is a bass player. He is a composer. He's an author. His book was I Was a Teenage Sex Pistol, which was inspired by Ian Hunter's Diary of a Rock and Roll Star. Yes? Yes. That's right. Hello, everybody. In a roundabout fashion, yes. I've also got a new book out called Triggers as well, which I don't know if you know about, but there you okay. go. I'm a published author. I'm a twice published author. So Look at you. Well. David, he is a recording and performing artist. He's a band member. He's a collaborator. Glenn is a sideman. And in his spare time, David, he founded one of the most influential rock and roll bands in the history of the arts form, the Sex Pistols. You were named for Glenn Miller. You came from a musical family, yes? Not really a musical family. My nan played the piano like a kind of pub pianist, we call it. Roll out the barrel. She wasn't <laughs> musically trained. And my parents like big band music. They like Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller. So I'm probably named after Glenn Miller, but they spelt it wrong. <laughs> Actually, Glenn, we almost met up at uh, Terminal Studios in Bermondsey in 2019. I was doing a bass player film, and Bruce Thomas was scheduled for an interview, but he came down with the flu. Deptford John Armitage, who you know, he runs the repair shop there, of course, but uh, you were still asleep. It was early in the morning, so we missed out. But we did actually, luckily, Boy George was rehearsing next door, so we nicked his bass player. Well, there you go. Talking to Boy George, just before Christmas, like one song only at the London Palladium, which is quite a big deal, kind of theatrical theatre, with Boy George when he was doing a duet with Susie Quattro. I play bass for Susie Quattro. Not many people can say that. That was yeah. kind of cool. Tell us, now you attended uh, St. Martin's Art School, and it's yeah. interesting, David and I talk about this with a lot of our guests about art school in Britain. You think John Lennon, Pete Townsend, Ray Davis, Richard Thompson, who we've had on the show, Brian Ferry, Joe Strummer, Freddie Mercury even, they all attended art school. What was it about that environment that fostered so many rock and roll careers? Because at the time, rock and roll was not considered an art form. It might not have been by some people. I wanted to go to art college because I'd read that all the people I liked, a lot of them who you just mentioned, not all of them, but a lot of them, had been to art college. And I thought that's where I'd find a band. I found a band outside of art college and introduced them to the art college scene where we did our first gigs. But I think the whole thing about art school was two things it was kind of people who didn't really know what they wanted to do with their lives they didn't want to go and work in a factory they didn't want to go to university they might have had some kind of slightly artistic leaning somehow could draw a bit and I was led to believe if you did that, you get a grant which from the government to help you kind of subsist for three years while you're trying to decide what you want to do. I never actually got a grant in the end because I was two days too young. So I felt hoodwinked. But I did put my time to, to good effect. And when I was applying to go to art college, I needed a reference. And I got like a teacher at school. I was still at school. But I was also working in Malcolm and McLaren and Vivian Westwood's shop. And I needed a second referee, you know, to give me a reference. So I don't know why I didn't ask her but I asked Vivian if she thought Malcolm would give me a reference and she said what for and I said well I'm thinking of applying to go to art college and she said well you don't want to ask Malcolm for a reference for art college I said why not she said but he's been thrown out of every art college in London <laughs> 
Like, I was kind of more interested in Malcolm because of that. And then also Malcolm became a bit more interested in me because I was going to art college. But I think what he did was he went from art college to art college and got a grant from each one. Then that's how he probably set up his teddy boy shop. Nice work but, if you can get it. That's yeah. It. But also, you know, in London at the time, it's just one big university now. They've all, they've all sort of amalgamated under this umbrella thing, the University of the Arts London. But they were all separate colleges and they all had a dance on a Thursday or a Friday night where bands would play and there was a scene and it was like the more happening people in London who didn't know what they wanted to do but wanted to do something somehow and um, it, it was just a good vibe and my college was right in the middle of Soho so when I was 17 years old go out and buy a pencil or something wander around the streets and you see all these kind of literary characters and comedians and actors and all that just walking around the street it, you know you walk down the street and you see um, Lucy and Freud and, and Francis Bacon going into the colony rooms to, for an early drink before the pub because they've been up all night and like there's all these people it, it was cool I, I, I dug it and my one of my big regrets in life is I could have stayed on I only did a foundation course I got into do a degree in fine art painting I could have been the first Damien Hurst not the second one because I'm older than him but I didn't go because in the summer holidays I found a rock and roll band but I could have done both really so that's my one regret but last year in kind of recognition of my going on about St Martins all the time and they get a lot of money from foreign students some of them went because they knew the Sex Pistols played there I got an honorary fellowship awarded by um, Grayson Perry who's one of our excellent Top, um, so does that come uh, with a title your excellency glenn matlock or your professor I, matlock or i think you fabulous fellow will do me <laughs> <laughs> what an alliteration correct Tom? <laughs> yes fabulous fellow matlock you know david and i have this thing about the punk movement for lack of a better term and that the best artists of the era were all exceptional players writers and conceptualists and not the talentless yobs that the media made them out to be. Afterbam was and afterbam wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, just in general, I'm not saying just you, but and we'll talk bass players since we're all bass players. Elvis Costello, phenomenal writer. Bruce Thomas, right? You had Graham Parker, right. extraordinary writer. Andrew Bodner, one of my favorite players. Of course, Ian Dury, great, great character he was. You were a fan of Brinsley Schwartz. They had a pretty good bass player, Nick Lowe, who went on to write a few decent songs. And He's not a bad bass player, Nick. Yeah, yeah right. Right. Of course, you had uh, Norman Watroy. You had uh, Joe Jackson, who was a great writer, all your contemporaries. Of course, there's Paul Weller and the Jam and Japan, right, with Mick Karn and all those players. So, I mean, it really was not, I mean, it really was an educated, an ambitious group of people in that era. Yeah, there's there's somebody who wanted to do something. Although I do remember overhearing a conversation with Malcolm McLaren and some journalist once who was trying to diss the Sex Pistols as just an art school band. And Malcolm said, come off it, mate. Can you imagine Steve Jones sitting on an outside drawing stool? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of funny. And do you know what? I was in, when we did a Pistols Reformation that might have been 96. Yeah, and we were... Old uh, Fat and 40, I think that was the... Me and, me and Paul were still only 39, so he was a bit miffed about that, right? <laughs> but he was re- rehearsing at SIR down on um, on Sunset there, and mm-hmm. he had to do a photo session. It went on a bit, and I had arranged to go and meet my friend, Al McDowell, who's now a big Hollywood set designer. He did Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Terminal, The Watchman, Fear and Love in Las Vegas with Johnny Depp. All those kinds of things. But he was the first person to ever book the Sex Pistols at Central School of Art. 
right? Mm-hmm. And in Silver Lake. Now, I said to the cameraman who was taking the picture, I said, we finished now. And he said, yeah. And I said, look, can I ask you something? And he said, sure. I said, what's the quickest way to Silver Lake? Now, the cameraman didn't know anything. He said, the quickest way to Silver Lake? He said, you got a great graduate from art college. <laughs> Out of the background, kind of thing. It was funny. But yeah, getting back to that, I mean, there was a lot of virtuosity. And not, you know, you had Johnny Marr, Wilco Johnson, Keith Levine, of course, uh, Jordy Walter, who just, uh, Walker, who just passed away. So yeah, there was, there was a lot of depth to that whole movement, which at least in the United States was kind of dismissed. But it was more of a political thing in the UK than here in the United States, where it was kind of more fashion. Maybe so. There was a lot going down in mid 70s. London and England, which is kind of mirrored today, really. I kind of had that conversation with Marco Ramon once. We were doing some joint interview and somebody said a similar kind of thing. And Marky launched into this very quite good and in- eloquent and intelligent charade against the whole idea about the state of mm. New York City when those bands came through. So maybe, maybe no. not, you know. Well, New York was in dire straits in the mid-70s. As you remember, David, you were living here. That's true. What's interesting also about the punk movement to me is the do-it-yourself ethic. I mean, here we had in the 40s, late 40s, early 50s, early rock and roll, people like Louis Jordan, Roy Milton, and folks like that. Then it became a little more homogenized within the bunch of the white groups. Then we had the Beatles and all of that in the 60s. Then as the 70s came around, you had the more milquetoast singer-songwriter folky guys and the bombastic bands. And then the do-it-yourself with punk. Then once again, you have the 80s with more bombastic hair bands, which I was a part of. New Wave, which was a little bit, and and the New Romantics. Then you had Grunge again, which was another do-it-yourselfer. And now we have AI and uh, it just... It seems to cycle the do-it-yourself yeah. aspect. You know what I mean? I, I agree, and I think what happens is is that, you know, each generation comes along kind of wants the opposite of the generation that came before. <laughs> so, um, you know, the punk thing was all ragtag and torn this and torn that, and then the 80s came, and it was the whole, you know, greed, money, money, money kind of thing, and showing off an ex- extravagance. And it was a direct reaction to the punk thing, I think. Although lots of those kids had come through the punk thing. You know, they they changed and they evolved into the new copy act kind of thing. It wasn't quite my thing, but some of them did quite well out of it. They took that DIY ethic that you had and applied it to their own perspective, their own approach to music, yeah. But, you know, there's always like a, a needs-must thing. I mean, when we were starting out and we needed posters and things, the height of technology, and I think with every music, fashion, fad, movement, there's some technological innovation that's come along. I mean, you wouldn't have had rock and roll if you didn't have tape echo for a start, you know. And you probably wouldn't have had Jimi Hendrix if you didn't have a fuzz face fuzz box or you wouldn't have had some kind of soul music, you know, if you didn't have a wah-wah pedal, you know, things like that. <laughs> but but with, with a punk thing, you'd be able to do some posters and the height of technology was set, right? Now, the thing is, you always run out of ease. It's the most common one in the thing. And they're blink inexpensive. So you can't get going and buy an set because you're short of two E's. So... Ellen, who was the little dwarf girl who was mates with Malcolm McLaren, she had the idea of cutting letters out in the newspaper and sticking them down. Just because of, you know, necessity is right. the mother of invention, if you right. don't listen. And it became a look, you know, you got the ransom look kind of, the ransom note kind of look. But there's always a lot of happenstance. But the thing is, is to not be put off by 
you go, oh, I can't do something. Let's see what we can do. I mean, Picasso had his blue period up because he could only afford full blue paint at the time. That's true. On a similar thread, we talked about with Jerry Jamat, another pretty decent bass player. About would Jocko be playing six strings if he were still alive today and doing all this other stuff? And he thought not. He thought that the limitations of the four string bass in some aspects in the jazz world were actually what made him great, what made maybe, him unique. Maybe so. You know, somebody said to me before, you know, how about a five string bass? You can go down to the B below the bottom E kind of thing. But right. I think that's a cop out. It, it makes you find a, a way around it. You know, if a song's in D and you can't go down to the D, you have to come up with some other way around it. And that, that little kind of constriction makes you think a bit harder, really. Yeah. It's very funny you say that because when I was listening to early Miles Davis electric period, I was wondering how the hell did that bass player get down to a low D? And all he did was he tuned his E string <laughs> down to a D. And that has been done as well. But the thing is, you got to have a good memory and remember to tune it back up again. Well, that's the problem. My guitars, <laughs> and I always tune them down. I said, I don't mind you borrowing them, but always tune them back up. They never do. And you pick up the guitar and it's in drop down. It's like, oh, for God's sake. Mm. Your generation, you were still recovering from World War II, your generation. We had Bill Wyman on the show and he just wrote a book about what it was like to experience World War II because obviously he was a bit older than the Stone. So you know, he yeah. remembers the bombs dropping, losing classmates, losing family members. And he said that the British ethos after World War II was you're grateful to be alive, to have survived it. But you always sought out opportunity and adventure. And when I read your book, first book you wrote, and we'll get to the second one, it seems like you kind of had that recovering from World War II approach to life anyway. It was about adventure. It was about opportunity. Yes? No? Yeah, yeah, maybe so. I mean, Bill's a lot older than me. And you saying that, I hadn't really considered that he was probably some bombs falling, but he must have done really. But when I was a kid, London was still full of bomb sites. You know, our playground was a bomb site. Not a euphemism for bomb site. It was a bomb site, you know, and you'd be clambering over the, the rubble and stuff, you know, kind of looking for rats and things like that. So it was still quite a relatively recent kind of thing. And then England was still still kind of getting grips to it. I think we still are. <laughs> <laughs> Ways. You know, where's our place in the world? We lost our empire. Bloody Americans kind of can- canoodled it away from us somehow with their lend. Li- don't bother me. You get on with it and the world's your oyster. But I think some of the powers that be, I've got a real hang-up about. And that's why we've ended up with the politicians and the Brexit thing we've got going on here. They can't come to terms with their place in the world. May you live in interesting times. You and David had similar experiences, both close in age. I'm just a few years younger. But uh, going to the Lyceum to see Man and David, you going off to uh, the Fillmore, and how influential that those live shows were to you in your teen years. Who did you say at the Fillmore? Everybody asked. Who did I see? Well, interesting enough, I was at the live at the Fillmore Humble Pie show. Well, you bastard! That's my favorite. <laughs> Well, guess what? About five years ago, I was in the latest incarnation of Humble Pie. Really? Yeah. Who? Oh, is this? One? Uh, but basically, Bucket was the only person that has any sort of lineage of. I was originally thinking, because it was Jerry Shirley that had put the thing together, that he would be on drums, but he was getting his hips replaced. So they ended up with a different drummer. And let's face facts you can't replace Steve Marriott. Oh, who, who, was you, who, who was singing? Jimmy Coons, who was in Cactus and Savoy Brown. And you, you just can't replace him. And, and it's nice. You, if you go on Wikipedia, my name's listed in Humble Pie. But outside of that, it's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
It's still you, good. I actually but you see, good. I have a really interesting Anglo life. I, I'll tell you why. In the 60s, my sister dated um, Tony Hicks of the Hollies. Then she was with um, Jim McCarty of the Yardbirds. And my brother-in-law, my first wife, was his wife was it was Ian McDonald. So um, I ended up playing with him a bit after we left Foreigner. You guys so grew many, up on the same music. Yeah, we did. Oh, gosh. I, there were so many great bands. I saw Procol Harum at the Fillmore. I didn't get to see the Jimi Hendrix um, New Year's Eve show, which was a, a drag. I would have liked to have seen that. But Jethro Tull I saw there. The strangest bill at the Fillmore was, you remember the band If? No, If. No, I know the yeah, movie. they were like the British version of Chicago. Okay. They were a horn band, all right? And then the middle act were the Faces, who I know you love. And the headliner was right. Black Sabbath. That is a bit weird, that. Yeah. <laughs> but you played but you know it. They fit together. Bill Graham had this knack for putting things together that on paper sounded like, well, oh, that's weird, but it worked out. Glenn, yes, you did get to play. How was that to play with your uh, your record collection? You got the sub for uh, Ronnie Lane. <laughs> I got the sub for Ronnie Lane. It, it was fantastic. I mean, the only drag, it was a version of The Faces, and Rod didn't do it, which was a drag. You're right. But Mick Hutnell did it. Mick Hutnell's a great soul singer, and for me, The yeah. Faces always a great, Rock and roll band with a great soul singer on shit, right? But it was Ronnie and Kenny and Mac mm-hmm. and got me the gig. And when they decided to have me, Mac called me up, Liam McGlagan called me up, and he said, Glenn, you sure you, you're in? Have you, you sure you got this down? I said, Mac, I learned to play with these songs, I know I'm backwards. And he went, great. I said, yeah, it's just forwards that I struggle with. And he laughed. And that kind of feel. But yeah, but that was fantastic. You know, that band, as well as having a great vibe, great songs, great sort of loose kind of musicianship but really good they opened the doors to so much other music for me you know like the staple singers and and taking the temptations a bit more seriously after you've seen them on top of the mm. box of papers in their cabaret outfit things like that big bill brunzi and all that kind of, they were a doorway to that and the meters and, and bobby womack all that kind of stuff although i tell you what i saw one of their earlier gigs i, I saw them three times when it was twice with ronnie lane and then once with tetsy it wasn't the same for me mm. but i think the first time i saw them before they come out was stay with me they used to do um it's all over now you know and they had oh. that fun version that ronnie lane had this weird kind of bomb, bomb, blah, 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 baseline but as soon as i wrote stay with me they dropped it's all over now and i wonder why well i, I don't really have to wonder why can it off blinking yeah. some if they dropped it because it was giving the game away <laughs> <laughs> actually david and i we do we do some benefits on it with notes from an artist we did team cancer with um who cares roger and and uh uh, Pete Townshend, and um, so we did a couple of shows over here. And yes, we did a, tra- a, a tribute to the faces. About faces was the name of the title of it. And yeah, it's tricky to learn those Ronnie Lane bass lines. And of course, Ron Wood was a fabulous bass. Yeah, he was. But um, in fact, about a year and a half ago, he called me up and I went and did some bass playing for him for some kind of quasi faces project. Now, dig this right. They were looking at some newer stuff and also some older stuff, but I. I don't know what's happening with it, but there was one song called Sudden Sun, S-O-U-N as opposed to S-O-N, mm-hmm. right? And it was recorded just before they split up, right? And they had to change some of the keys because I think Rod was going to do something. I don't know if he did or not, but I went mm-hmm. in with Ken and Ronnie and then um, that guy plays with the Stones now, Matt Clifford, is it, Matt? Max Clifford, keyboard player. He's playing with Iggy recently. And then Jules Holland came down. But they were changing some of the keys. And I went in early the next day. And I thought, well, I'd learned this 
strong seven sum, when they come in and they decide what key it's going to be in, at least I'll know it and I'll transpose it. So I said, put the tape up. You better tape the bass player out, which was probably Tetsu on that thing. And I'm not kidding you. It's the faces. It's a good song. It's a bit punky, actually, but it's kind of the faces in their sort of Paul or Richard kind of heyday with Rod Stewart doing a guy vocal. And I'm playing along. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he's going, right. Oh, it's one, two, three, four. Here we go. You know, intro goes round again. Right, first, baby, baby, baby. I ain't got all the words. Blah, 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 blah. Bridge. Back to the verse. I'm looking around for my mates, and it's just me and the engineer. But I was playing cases in like 1975 you know? <laughs> so whether that will see the light of day i don't know yeah you we've know. been seeing that in the press on and off that there was so much there was faces material left in the vault another record some of it snuck out on archival releases but there's still some stuff left as obviously you just described yeah yeah so we'll see it's only good so, yeah, yeah. Now you you were attracted to blue to the blues early on. You one of the first records you bought was Story of the Blues, and yeah. you mentioned the track Guaranteed to Split was was kind of the template for Anarchy in the UK. What was the, the track wasn't guaranteed to split. The guitar I had had a sticker inside the sound hole, guaranteed not to split. <laughs> okay, I got it. Right, it's not. No, right. I never let facts get in the way of a good story, David. That's <laughs> it. That's it. You know, this is fake news on the Notesman <laughs> Artist Radio Show. But yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that, uh, and we talk about this with many of your peers, with uh, John Altman, Bill Wyman, of course, Guy Pratt. Is is that what is it about the American blues that attracted young? British male teenagers. What is it about that music that, that caught you? Well, I think all some of the people, you know, that guy is a little bit younger than me and some of the other people, I mean, the bands we listened to, you know, the early Who and the Stones and the Kinks, they were pretty much blues-based originally, you know, mm. and, and the 12-bar blues is something if you learn learning the guitar, you can sort of pick up on quite easily. There was a good uh, show on um, Saturday afternoon, uh, early evening on BBC, when it was all like pop-packed through the week. But there was this thing called a Mike Raven's Blues Show, and he would play stuff like that. And in fact, when I thought I've got some money to go and buy a record or go and buy a, a blues record, I can't remember exactly it was, but it was like the best of Big Bill Brunsey or something like that. And I went to my local record store, and I'm well, a skinhead, but yeah, you know, I sort of had like moddy kind of haircut and Levi stay pressed on. I'm going there, and there's a guy there with long hair and an Afghan coat. Going, hey man, can I help you? You know, he's like <laughs> Vivian. And yeah. I said, Have you got Big Bill Brunsey's latest best of release? And he went, What? <laughs> you know, he didn't have it. But he said, well, I said, he said, why? And I said, well, I'm learning the guitar, and I was recommending it. And he talked me into getting the, the story of the blues double album. And, and I'm glad I got it, because it was like the whole history of the blues in one record, you know, right from southern country blues right up through to the sort of stopped sort of mid to late kind of 60s, you know. Mm. But he kind of got a thing where it came from. And another record I got around that time was the Stars of the Apollo, all the people who played in Harlem. And it's got the best jazz track uh, ever heard in my life on it it's called venus velvet by the bobby brown quartet and i've looked everywhere for another track by you know a record by him i've never found one i had, had all the people going around the store at amoeba in los angeles couldn't find it Track is fantastic so all i reckon is is that guy possibly might have been a bit of a junkie or something like that managed to get one recording once because they were recording live at the apollo and um never got a record deal Wow, then, I have to research that one, yeah. But get out, it is fantastic. And it's got great bass playing on it, and all double bass, discordant kind of. It, it's, it's cool. It's cool. Well, no, again, we, we, we talk about the punk movement, again, for lack of a better word, there was lots of folk 
there was lots of blues in it. I mean, you, I know you weren't allowed to play seven chords, but there was certainly a lot of blues riffs in there. So the punk movement was very much born of traditional music, folk and, and blues. Yeah, a lot of it. Not not all of it. I think mm-hmm. if you talk to Mick Jones, he probably knows his way around the 12 bar. You know, should I stay or should I go? Right. You might as well be the Yardbirds or, or something like that. That is Steve Jones at the time knew what a 12 bar blues is. <laughs> I did. I also like kind of pop music as well, you know, but more of a European kind of way of songwriting so it's it's all in there yeah some had a great time with pirate radio i mean oh, there yeah. you started hearing all this incredible music that you weren't able to hear on the bbc yeah it was fantastic time and all the bands i mentioned you know the kinks and the who and the Yardbirds and the stones that's why i heard them first you know on a little transistor radio that all the kids of my age had under your pillow at night and you could tune into it was there was a, a station called radio luxembourg which wasn't strictly a, a pirate station but it was in europe and you could get American Forces Network. And then the pirate radio station started up in about 63 or something in boats just outside British territorial waters, and they would play all those records. And then we had the best ever TV show in the world called Ready, Steady, Go, playing it live. And then also Dusty Springfield was on it quite a lot, and she got here to Sam Lamota, and they were doing a tour in England, found out all this out in retrospect, and the tour wasn't doing very well, and she insisted that the producer put them on a programme. And then you'd see Smokey Robinson on, on there and Juno Walker and the All-Stars and Sam Cooke and the Supremes and then a bit later Martha Reeves and the Fandellas and Fandellas and stuff. It was fantastic. And they all played live. It's this yeah. great kind of it's Sam Cooke doing not a duet, a triet with um, from the Animals, singer from the Animals. Oh, Eric, Eric Burton. Burton, yes, I've Eric seen that, yes. And the guy from, um, what's his name? Was his it name. Chris Farlow in that? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, you know, so it's stuff like that. It's pretty cool. That's, that's what got me, you know, and then you'd have bands like Small Faces and they just kind of look like young kids, really. You know, the little fellas and look great. That's Always what... blew my mind, Glenn, that they never made it big here. Well, it, they never toured here, David. They never came Well, to that's America. because of Andrew Logan. You know, he was basically, you know, when they were on immediate records, he kept them there. Yeah, they were spending tons of their money on going to Carnaby Street and buying fashion. No, 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 no. They they never got paid. They had, instead of getting paid, their management, Don Arden originally, and set them up accounts that they could go and get clothes. That's it, yes. Paid. So they used to go and get clothes. And Kenny Jones told me, he said he used to get as much as he could and flog it to his mates just to get some money coming in. <laughs> they were totally stitched up, really. But maybe that's why they didn't go to the States, because they didn't want to be kind of poor in America and not getting paid for it. Which right. is kind of that's really possible. And um, Marriott, you know, he formed Humble Pie as a way of getting out of that, and he had similar problems yet again, you know. So, <laughs> and I saw Marriott, and I met him a couple of times briefly, and he would play pubs in London. Right. Where we're at, a packet of three. Well, yeah, but he'd have 500 people in it. It'd be the highest ticket price of the week, and it was all cash. So he was doing all right out of that. Yeah. But it was keeping everybody else's hand out of his pocket. It's such a shame, because that guy should have been so good. And he even said about the faces, you know, when they got Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood, he said, well, they're not bad. He said, but it took two guys to replace me. <laughs> it's true. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I tell you, I was being managed by um, Lieber Krebs in New York. Marriott uh, had, had a version of Humble Pie that was being managed by them. But whenever he came into the office, 
It was a scary thing. He was, what was it, Melvin? He basically, what, what people called him Melvin when he was in his crazy phase, right. you know, too much of everything. And yeah. it was just such a shame because the man had the most incredible voice of all. I mean, really, really just spectacular. And he wrote great songs. Yeah, and he was a great showman and he played great guitar. Yeah. I, I- I, I just think it was he ended up like that out of frustration really you know he knew he should have been doing better than he was then it just wasn't happening you know so he was he was uptight about it but I did talk to Mac about it and I said you know when Marriott was over there that time I said do you ever speak to him he said but you know what he, did, he called me up and left a message and I said you call him back he said no he said I should have done but I love Steve, but he was just too much. He self-sabotaged himself. Yeah. That was what it was, you know. Well, he also it, suffered from bipolar disorder. Explains a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, that explains a lot of it. But again, interesting how influential not only the small faces were in your country, but over here, American rockers of a certain generation all cite Humble Pie and the Fillmore East record as right. a touchstone. You know. As a matter of fact, when we were doing the, the um, Humble Pie Redux, we did Tin Soldier. Oh, fantastic. Well, do you know what? Good for you. When I did the faces thing, it occurred to everybody that Matt and Kenny hadn't played a small faces song live together since like 1968 or something like that. So as an encore, we learned All or Nothing, which is oh, pretty good, and, and Tin Soldier. And we played it as an encore. And as we was walking off the stage and pulled it off, because Tin Soldier is a little bit more complicated than All or Nothing, Ronnie was at me and he was beaming like a school kid. He said, how about that, Glenn? He said, me and you played two small faces. We two of the small faces and we got them both right. And he was like, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Fabulous. Again, you know, you talk about pirate radio. Again, it, it goes back to that whole DIY thing. And that's what we were talking with a guy, Pratt, and he said, yeah, that was the, the the attitude in Britain. Well, if you didn't like the music on the radio, start your own band. If you didn't yeah. like the comedy, start your own comedy show, like Alexi Sal and Young Ones, who you rep, the uh, yeah. subversive comedy. And the same thing, that so the same thing held true in television, pirate radio, music. It was that, well, that I, aesthetic. I don't think you're right, but I don't think that's only um, peculiar to punk, yeah. you know. It's, it's what everybody's done with really, and probably mm. still do now. You know, the whole house music thing is yeah, a technological kind of invention. The computer came along with um, not arpeggiators, you know, software programs that you can record at home. Sampling, yeah. Sub- everybody's learned how to use it or sort of learned how to use it. You start getting house records come out. People make for next to nothing in their bedroom. What's in the pipeline now? I don't know. It's probably AI, just- probably. What do you think of the Beatles? taking uh, George and John and making a new track out of it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah here. I, I, ask me what I think of it. What do you think of it? Clamber tells me that he thinks it sounds like Oasis. That's what. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, again, it's another tool. I mean, I think it would be extraordinary to use AI to go back and maybe restore maybe Charlie Parker or Enrico Caruso. But I don't together. know. Together, yes. That would be a great thing, yeah. <laughs> that. But, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's a new tool. And, and how, how we'll, we'll see what the outcome is. How would you like it if it's an AI podcast from YouTube? I, I don't see it right. Yeah. I it can yeah. it can happen, yes, right, and it's already been discussed. What was it we were reading in the trade papers the other day about um iHeart doing uh, um, AI podcasts and AI radio shows? Again, you know, yeah, it could be used for good and it could be used for evil. You know, just like you know, what look at look what AI did with the uh, Get Back documentary. 
with Peter Jackson. That was wonderful to mm. see the Beatles in their own environment. I mean, it was a bit long and drawn out, eight hours. But to actually be in a Beatles rehearsal session, you know, we couldn't have seen that footage because it was, you know, it was archived. The sound wasn't good. And, you know, he refurbished it. So, you know, there are benefits to AI, mm. you know. But I don't know about replacing people. Uh, tell us about your solo career now. You, obviously, you, you had your, you, you did time with the rich kids. You also got to play with Iggy Pop and the Damned, and you were recently touring with Blondie. What about being a band leader? How did you make that transition? Well, it's just every now and then. You've got enough songs that you've written, you know, and you try pitching to a few people and you don't quite get there and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and songs going around your head for an album and the only way to get rid of them is to make a record. You make a record, then you've got to put it out and then you've got to do some gigs to plug it and off you go on this kind of greasy pole of promotion and, and stuff. And not being renowned for being a lead singer, it's, it's been a bit hard work. But mm. it seems like some of the slipperiness from the greasy pole has worn off over the years. You know, I'm kind of getting halfway up it now. And I enjoy yeah. it. And it's thing that you learn to do. I always remember years ago, I was recording in Wales with Iggy Pop, and he was having dinner, and he said something. And I said, well, it's all right for you. You've got a, you've got a naturally great voice. And he got so annoyed at me. And he said, no, I haven't. He said, no, I haven't. I've worked hard. I've worked damn hard to have a voice like this. And I thought, oh, that's a point, you know. And back then, if I wrote a song, yeah, you guys must know this being musicians. And I don't know, maybe you live in quite a nice house. It looks nice from here. I've always lived in the middle of London, so you're in an apartment or something. So yeah, that's me. I'm in Manhattan here this is my domain here right well it's bigger than some of the ones i've seen in manhattan but yes. you know so you're writing a song and you're a bit cagey because you haven't finished all the lyrics yet and you don't know if it's any good and then there's neighbors next door and you keep it down a little bit right and then you go to a rehearsal room and you rehearse the band up because you've got some demo time coming up and then you spend ages getting the drum sound and the lead guitarist wants to have 20 more goes at getting the solo just right, right? And then you go to do the vocals and you've got like half an hour left to do the vocal. <laughs> and it's in the wrong fucking key, right? Don't be give out the chance to sing it. It happens, you know. So, and I spent a lot of time singing too high. But now we're being a bit more noise at home, and we've, you know, I've learnt, taught myself over the years, not Pro Tools, but the other one. Uh, what's it called? Logic. Yeah, Logic. You know, and there's Auto Tune. You don't want to audit. I don't want to audit shit. No Logic. You know, but you can, you can do the demo of the song at home, rough version. Don't get too hung up on it, and then play around with a key quite a lot. You know, and then you get it right and then that's when you fill in all the blanks of all of the missing words and things so it, it is a useful tool but it's not an end result in itself i think the danger with home recording the stuff comes all pre-loaded with really right. good sound. you can convince yourself that you got something but you haven't necessarily got a good song you know and i think yeah. it could, is stands the test if you can go out and pump perform it live just with you with an acoustic guitar which I do quite a lot I've just dates around the UK with that I've done it around America I've done some double-headed small kind of tours with Sylvain Sylvain a few years back and it put it's scary but it's not a reason not to do it and when you pull it off it puts hairs on your chest you know yeah yeah, absolutely yeah that is the thing with home recording you know you talk about home recording you know we are all of the album generation and we live in a world of streaming do you think the album format, and you just did a record, Consequences Coming, last April, I guess it was. Yeah. Is the album format still relevant in an age of streaming? Is there a place for the album, do you think? I don't know, but I'm kind of quite um, contrarian. I'll do it anyway. But 
what people have said for my last three albums, the consequences coming out, one out before then called Good To Go, and one before that called Born Running. Born Running, yeah. They, they dug them because they sound like albums, you know. They're, they're like a, not a statement, but they're like a document of where Glenn Matlock was at that particular point when he was recording and doing it, and they kind of hang together as an album. And I'm not going to say no, that's, that's, that's kind of cool. Hold on a second. What's that? Is that a Tony Hancock? Yeah, that's The Rebel. Oh, well, yeah. That's an original poster. Why do you have that? Because i got to tell you a funny story afterwards. Yeah, go on. Well, tell it to me now. Tell All right. You know what that movie was called in America? No, I don't. Call me genius. Well, now, do you know what? There was a guy who was a big agent for actors in Hollywood, and he was also a friend of the, the punk rock stars and stuff, and he was a bit troubled, and he sadly didn't last the course. But maybe, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, I forget the guy's name now, but I wouldn't say it anyway, but he would call call me up. It was obviously three or four o'clock in the morning in Los Angeles, and we would he would sort of kind of coax me into having a quiz about the bit part players in the Rebel. And he knew them all. Practically. Oh, God. Yeah, it was really funny, you know. Like, but I didn't know why he would know the rebel. He hadn't seen this on my wall. But I, I didn't realise it had come out in America as a different movie. No. Yeah, call me genius, yeah. It's a savage indictment of the art world, as it yes. was in his end now. And it's fantastic. But the reason I got it is because not far from where I live, there's a place called Westbourne Grove, which is a little bit kind of upmarket. You know, it's sort of mm. like a cross between Rodeo Drive and... and um, Melrose? Uh, uh, you know, Melrose or something. Yeah, yeah, Melrose. I was walking down the street, and it was pouring down with rain. It was, like, really pouring down with rain. And there's an old-fashioned shop, you know, where you go in there, and there's, you're still outside, but there's a doorstep. I got some in there, and there was a poster shop. And I went in there, and it started raining even more, and I had all these posters on the wall. And they had one for like kind of, I, I don't know, like uh, North by Northwest or something like that. Oh, yeah. So the guy says, oh, can I help you, sir? Now, I'm trying to stay out the rain. I said, how much is that? And he went, and it was a big one. He went, and this is like 15 years ago. He said, that's 12,000. No, it's 1,200. He said, no, 1,000. went, oh, well, how much is that one? I got vertigo. And he said, oh, that one's 15. I'm like, oh, blimey. No. And he said, can I interest you in anything? And he's sort of trying to get rid of me. I said, I tell you what, I bet you haven't got The Rebel by Tony Hancock, have you? And he went, Ooh. and he went out the back. And I'm trying to stay out of the rain. He come back, he said, yeah, I got it. It's 500 pounds. All right, wrap it up. I'll have it. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Oh, I, I got it. You know, it's kind of cool. And it's not bad in a podcast. Look, see? The Rebel. Yeah, it's a good background. It beats a Fender bass and a, and, a, and a comfy couch there, David. All right. I have somewhere, I have an original Hard Day's Night poster. Probably in the garage. Or the garage. The garage. Well, uh, just before we wrap up, one of the big influences on you and, and, and your bandmates in The Clash was this guy, Bernie Rhodes, and he advised you to be clear-cut. And when I look at your uh, solo career, you pretty much are clear-cut. Tell me about this uh, new band, this uh, Glenn Matlock in the Maestros, which is your colleague, Clem Burke, and Gilby Clark, whom I love, and Steve Fishman. Yeah, well, it's the Maestros. We did one show. We did a Roxy in L.A. in between Blondie shows in the summer. Went off really well. I like coming to America and, and playing. We'd be enough for like, a West Coast tour. The West Coast in January is a better bet than London in January. I do remember seeing some award show where John Cleese got an award. He beamed in from a rooftop 
in Los Angeles and he said, thank you very much for this award, but I'm really sorry I can't be there in London tonight because I really miss it in late January. <laughs> but so after the shows, go and do some shows, you know. So we'll see what happens. But the show we did in um, at the Roxy, it, it was cool. We had quite a few guests up. Kathy Valentine got up with us. Slim Jim did a number with us. And Kevin Prest, who's now in Green Day, is the second guitarist and an old mate of mine. And Fred Armisen got up. I had him all, I've got a doo-wop number called Trying to Tell You. And I had them all going, Baps you up. <laughs> These kind of people doing that. It, it was cool. And it was a bit like a loose version of the Rolling Thunder thing, but it was more like Rolling Blunder. So <laughs> I'm trying to see what happens with that. So I, each place I go to, I'll try and get some people out. I can't afford to drag everybody around with me. It's fun. You know, when you play with different people, it puts a different slant on things. Pun's great. But I, on this, I'm playing rhythm guitar. And because the thing is, I don't know if you're much of soccer fans, but probably some applies to American football. You know, the guy, the striker, the guy who's supposed to uh, go the goals, you notice in soccer, they're always pointing where they want the ball, right? Now, if you're on a lead singer and you want people to join in, you've got to point at them and say, like, come on, you, come on, you. And you can't do it when you're playing the bass. I'm on the, on the rhythm guitar, and, and that's why I'm, I do it. That's the secret. That's the secret. Well, it's interesting that you have a Gilby in the band. I, you know, I used to live in California. I, I've interviewed uh, Duff and Gilby, and the Sex Pistols were a major, major influence on Guns N' Roses. And when we talked to a lot of our colleagues who were in the big 80s hair bands, they were all fans of your your band. That, that was a big influence on that L.A. scene. I kind of know that, and I appreciate that, but they can't have been that much fans if they wouldn't get their bleeding hair cut. <laughs> Well, well, see, they were rebelling against the sex pistol. Oh. They were rebelling against you, Glenn. They want, Every generation oh, wants to be oh, different. Hold on, hold on. David's going to show you his big hair. Oh, no. Right. I don't quite see this. This is a, a, a base magazine in Germany. I had lots of hair. Good. Not anymore, but... Uh, <laughs> and Tom, of course, no, I'm a, less than I. Right, uh, I get. The, I have the Tony Levin look. But see that, see that, Glenn? David was the answer to the punk movement by having big hair in Los Angeles in the uh, 1980s. So see and, that? of course, spandex, the most forgiving of fabrics. <laughs> it all depends if you've got something to be forgiven for. <laughs> <laughs> That's how true, how true. Right. Well, if you remember Spinal Tap with the... Uh, um, the airport, right? You know what? That that movie, I mean, it's so good. Uh, you know, I'm a pretty born and bred Londoner. I'm, I'm, I'm even a cockney, right? When I first saw it, I thought, where did he, these actors, I've, I've, you know, they're, they're really good. They must have been someone before. And I had no idea they were American. They're that good. I did, they were American. So that's, that's saying something, that. And then also, we did a big show, a big comeback show in um, Bendry Park in London in 96. But we had to burst through this screen which was like really thick cartridge paper you know it was like kind of 80 foot by 40 foot high we had to burst through it and as we're standing behind going through the thing i'd made the mistake of watching spinal tap the night before and all i could think of was the bass player in the, in the cocoon the roadies had a little Stanley knife and they cut a little That's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, that film was more of a documentary than it was, a, a, but it was a, a perfect parody. But 
do you are you going to bring the maestros into the studio or you don't know yet at the moment they're helping me plug the album on the album why do you call it maestros it's the maestros How do you oh it's the maestros excuse me that's i'm, yeah. I'm I, I tend to mispronounce has the things. most difficult problems with the english language <laughs> just i had a band years ago called the specters and i spell it how we spell it and i could never understand why phil Spectre had an o in his name and they spell it and when i came them they're going why are you called the Spectres? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, oh no, surely my the maestros, right? They're all good players, you know. Well, why not call it that? And there's a bit of alliteration with Glenn Matlock and the maestros. They're yeah. the maestro. Let's see. But on my album and the album before, El Slick's all over it. No, he's fantastic. Now I'd love to get him to do something, but he lives upstate New York. Mm. The West Coast is the West Coast. It's a long plane ride away. Live on the West Coast. Yeah, everybody's kind of as good as each other. It's like a financial consideration, which is yeah. a drag. We have to talk your author, author. Now you tell tell us about triggers. Well, tell us tell about triggers. It's a book that I put out several months ago. People have been asking me. I wrote. I was a chain edge sex pistol twenty five years or more ago. Maybe before people were doing kind of autobiographical rock right. kind of. Book. I got a bit lost over the years, but it's in its seventh imprint. It ticks over. But people say you're going to write a follow up. Now I hadn't been rushing to do it, but I thought one day, and I've done a lot more since then, which it's been interesting and hopefully other people will find it interesting but I thought I can't write the same book again you know and just update it kind of thing how can I go about it and somebody suggested to me why don't you sort of hang it hang it on some of the lyrics you've written so each chapter is a song now there's songs that I've written songs I've had a hand in writing songs that I've done covers of songs that have been influences behind me and it's a trigger point to go off and talk about how you arrived at that and slot some stories in and stuff and it's been very well received and it's coming out in America in February it's out over here now bass players make good authors David Bill Wyman's books That's are true. fabulous yeah I've got I get, get hold of Bill Wyman's book and also I've got over I've got a Bill Wyman of all. Hang on, hang on, I'll get it. I'll show it to you. <laughs> there you go. He's, there's his, there's the rebel. Yeah, there's the rebel. Uh, let's see his sw- his swag here. Yeah, look. We should do a show on baseball on tchotchkes, David. I, I don't know if you're going to say this. Look at that. What is that? Oh, what is it? Just not long before lockdown, I did a gig at Penny Jones's um, polo club. Right, he does a, a cancer benefit, yes? Well, it was some kind of benefit, but it was yeah. hard on the fact that it was like a tribute to Brian Jones, who he knew. Those different people played. Donovan played. Steve Harley played. I played. And at the end of the night, we was all waiting to go and get an award. You know, a thank you for doing it, which was one of these things. But okay. it, was, it was dark on the side of the stage. So they said, look, go and get your award. And when we finish, we all go back to the, you know, the, the green room and we sort out which one's which for everybody. <laughs> so I just took this one, walked off, went back to the green room and um, I said, where's my mum? And they said, well, we went for it all. We went, oh, I think Steve Arnold's got it. Well, where's Steve? He's gone home. So he's gone home with my award. And I looked at this one and I got Bill Wyman's one, right? <laughs> so my one thank you very much so a few weeks later my one arrived so I've got two of these with Glenn Matlock on it although I think they put two ends in it but I've still got Bill Wyman's one so I've, I've never really met him that well kind of thing so somehow I'm going to have to drop it off I might have to take it down to Chelsea Arts Club where I know he frequents and um, okay. so you have stolen property yes we're, we're going to have Bill back on the show in March because he is going to uh, ha- he has a new record coming but tell him to me through Slim Jim Phantom who's big man we will definitely pass that message on to him and they'll say hey we've got stolen property we know we know where glenn we we can find out where glenn matlock lives and you can- yeah, it's-
think of keeping. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, Glenn, thank you for being a guest on the show. We'll certainly plug the tour. Keep us posted. We'll definitely, when Triggers comes out, we'd love to have you back on the show. Uh, that would be great. And could you please give us a plug? And you say, I'm Glenn Matlock, and you're listening to Notes from an Artist. All right. You ready? Hi. I'm Glenn Matlock, and you're listening to Notes from an Artist. There you go, Beautiful. David. Tear to my eye, I'm telling Tear you. Tear to my eye, just... okay. Well, Glenn, <laughs> once again, thanks for talking. We won't be able to get out to Los Angeles, unfortunately, but you know, David and I plan on coming to the U.K., uh, sometime yeah. in 2024, we're doing some work with uh, Guy Pratt and, and uh, Gary Kemp. You've been on that show, yeah. I did the first live one with them at the screen on the green kind of thing with Dean oh, uh, Beagle, who's very funny, but you can't understand the word he said. We had Guy Pratt on the show about two weeks ago, and I said, yeah, we're going to we're gonna keep stealing your guests. All right, take Happy care. Happy New Year. Good to see Bye you. Then. Bye-bye. Fabulous interview, David. Thank you, Glenn, for being on our show. David, it's time for the... Notes from an artist, Glenn Matlock. Absolutely, Glenn. We really appreciate you being on the show. And I can't wait to read your new book, Triggers. Because obviously, being an American, I thought, oh, he's writing a book about Roy Rogers' arse. (laughs) Not about that? No, it's really not. It's a very clever title. Glenn, we will have you back on the show. Okay, David, let's get to the playlist. Bye-bye. I'll see you next week. (laughs) 